This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think Ken's going to message you and be like, I have collateral on you now forever. It's true. <laughs> if that's the worst thing I've said about Canada. Hello and welcome to the EDH Rec cast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joseph Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Joseph, did I tell you about the band I used to be in? You did not. I, I was in a band actually, we were called 999 Megabytes. We never quite did get a gig though. <laughs> I'm really sad about that, Matt. I would have loved to hear some of your music. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. You know those constant rumors we hear about a sixth color in magic? I'm not entirely sure we have five right now. (laughs) And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series, and I'm really smitten with that comment. That was really funny. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to revisit that Boros color. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of chatter online about Boros and especially Red and White and how they work within Commander. And since we're hot off the heels of Throne of Eldraine, where we saw a bunch of monocolored legends, this has just really been on people's minds a lot about how to make those colors especially good in Commander. So we wanted to revisit that topic because we think that we've got some important uh, important gems to share, or at least we hope we do. Before we get to our main topic, though, we have a quick announcement. As of September 25th, 2019, EDH Rec is officially five years old. Can you guys believe it? Yeah, it's um, potty trained at this point. Wow, that's the metaphor that you went to first? <laughs> we're just talking about what, dad stuff. I had it on the brain. What can I say? Yeah, it, it's it's a growing child now. It's, it's about ready for preschool yeah. or, or however. I don't know what age you start school in. That's, yeah, I mean, I know, I know ter- nothing I'm a terrible about, father. About so yeah, it's, <laughs> it's old, though. It's old. It's out of diapers. At least it better be. And uh, it, it's awesome that we're, we're all here. 
Yeah, it is a really, really great accomplishment. Congratulations to EDHREC for making it five years. Here's to five more. And sort of as a celebration of this, we have a fun announcement for a winner of a giveaway. We do. So I tweeted out the other day um, to respond to everybody. We posted a couple pictures of the new EDH RecCast playmats that we put out. Asked everybody to comment on their favorite or comment with their favorite commander from the year 2019. It didn't have to be just strictly from the, the pre-cons. So we have a winner. It is Mr. Barry B. Benson at Real Barry the Bee. You said, I really like Gerid, Conclave Exile, but Grumgully the Generous has captured my imagination with his Papa Smurf charm, and I can relate. <laughs> so, Barry, congratulations. You are our winner. We're going to send you a EDH RecCast playmat. Uh, make sure you message us when you can with your shipping details, and we'll get that to you as soon as we can. And you'll be able to play all of your awesome cards right on top of our faces so that you don't have to look at them anymore. Our animated faces. They're not as bad as the real thing. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Oh, goodness. Well, congratulations to Barry B. Benson. That's a really awesome alliterative name. But we've also got one more announcement that we want to remind folks of, and that is the Command Fests that are coming up from November 1st to November 3rd. There's one happening in Seattle and one happening in Chicago. Dana and I will be attending each of those respectfully. So definitely come say hi and get some games in with us. Yeah, absolutely. I will be in Chicago and Joey will be in Seattle. And, and, and I, I think it's going to be an awesome time somewhere. Yeah, and I think that because there's one in Washington, D.C. Um, on the first ish of December as well. And there will be some EDH rec website people there, I think, including perhaps Don Miner. Um, and we will provide some more information on that as that gets closer as well. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, again, we're sorry that these aren't conveniently located for you to uh, to go to those. But we will get you at one of these events one of these days. Eventually, Wizards will, will realize that I, I need to be in attendance more often, and they're going to help me out. So, Watsy, get on it. Let's let's do some more stuff in the mountains. It's Command, pretty here. It's Commander pretty. Fest Boulder coming to a uh, com- <laughs> small town in Colorado com- near you. Watch out, Commander Fest Pueblo. <laughs> Commander Fest Fort Carson. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be really <laughs> exciting. We are definitely looking forward to it, but... With all of those out of the way, now let's get into the meat of our show, the main topic, where we're going to be talking a bit about Boros again. So Throne of World Drain just released, and it brought with it a bunch of monocolored legends. And some of them, like Sir Conrad or Emery Lurker of the Lock, really hit the mark when it comes to monocolored commander design. Even uh, Torbrand, Thane of Red Fell, he's a mono-red commander who increases damage. Even he proved himself to be pretty compelling by ramping up Red's damage output. And there's sort of this long-standing community wisdom that Boros is the worst color pair in EDH. It's certainly the least popular. We can see that much by looking at the data on the EDH track. And as the saying goes, red and white struggle with things like mana ramp and card draw. And what we kind of wanted to do on this episode was interrogate that notion. Because, well, we don't necessarily think that this adage is 100% accurate anymore. And to be clear, there are problems with Boros and with red and with right, but we wanted to get to what the actual root of the problem is rather than repeating platitudes. We wanted to try and really interrogate that and see if it's, you know, still definitely true. And by interrogating the actual root cause, we'll figure out what we should look for in future sets to help balance things out and make things a bit better. So let's get into it. You guys ready? Yeah, let's do this. So... We're going to start with one of the main arguments, argument one, that red and white are bad at mana ramp. Well, I mean, just sort of starting off, 
This is also true of blue and of black. If you're playing something like Azorius or you're playing Rakdos, you rely upon mana rocks too. This is a non-unique problem to Boros. So right off the bat, one of those ideas that Boros struggles with mana ramp, it just kind of doesn't ring true for me. Where are you guys at with that? I mean, Boros is no worse at ramp than any color that isn't paired with green is bad at ramp. I mean, you you mentioned Rakdos for Azorius, but I think it's true basically of any pairing, whether it's Orzov or... Um, you know, Azorius, you said, but like just basically if it's not paired with green or green, they're all equally bad at ramp for the most part. Right. And I also don't know that I'd even say that they're bad at ramp. We have like a billion mana rocks now. We have Solvering, we have the Talismans, we have Signets, we have the new Arcane Signet that's coming out, assuming you can afford one. There's Cold Steel Heart, Wayfarer's Bubble, the Diamond Cycle, like Marble Diamond or Fire Diamond. You've got Star Compass, you've got Mindstone, Commander Sphere. There's the new Dark Side Extortionist that sounds really awesome. Uh, there's... Then in some of the higher cost mana rocks, you've also got Hedron Archive. Smothering Tithe is a new awesome one at four mana. Thran Dynamo taps for a bunch of mana. Solemn Simulacrum and Burnished Heart are creatures that can get you mana. Worn Power Stone, Sword of the Animist, Firemind Vessel, Gilded Lotus, the Mono Red and the Heb can get you a bunch of mana. That's so many different options to provide you with mana advantage in these colors. That's a lot. So I'm not even sure that I'd be able to say that these colors necessarily struggle with ramp. Like, are a lot of those destroyable with things like a Vandal Blast or a Bane of Progress? Yeah, they sure are, but that problem will exist for any deck without green, too. We don't make these complaints about it or Esper decks or something like that. We seem to only make the argument that Boros can't ramp. We only make that complaint about Boros. So I'm just not sure if that argument that Boros is bad at mana ramp is necessarily as true, since that's also true of something like Orzov or Azorius. Well, and, and let's let's compare Boros in, in that regard to, say, Orzov. I mean, yes, black brings a, a few different ritual effects to the table and has a few, like, Crypgask-like mana doublers. But like you mentioned, white has Smothering Tithe, and, you know, red has things like Mana, like mana Geyser is a legitimately powerful, yeah. underplayed card in Commander that's as good at, at that one-turn burst ramping as almost anything out there. It's... You know, I've seen as many crazy busted mana guys as I have crazy busted high tides. Um, people tend to forget that's there. You also have, you know, white may not be good at land ramping like every color that isn't green, but white isn't worse at it than anybody else. It it actually has a few decent options. Core Cartographer and Night of the White Orchid actually ramp you lands in a way that other colors don't really have access to. They have cards that put lands in the hand in ways other cards don't, like land tax or gift of estates or tithe. So, you know, yes, they're not green, but I don't know if Boros is even the worst at doing those things. I think it might well be, you know, middle of the pack. It's definitely not, I don't think, last place in terms of ramp. There's enough tools in those colors that, you know, blue, for example, doesn't have access to that I think it's better at it than people think. Um, I think it's also very telling that the most played talisman, you know, we talk about how the talismans, we got the enemy color talismans in Modern Horizons. Uh, back in Mirrodin, we got the original ones. We got the allied color ones. The most played talisman, if you guys would like to guess, what would you say it is? I'm guessing that you're going to go to the Boros one? Well, no, because that doesn't come in you know, mirrored in. What's the most... Oh, sorry. Was not listening. Yes. <laughs> uh, would probably guess the Demir one. That is correct. So at 12,000 decks, the Talisman of Dominance is the most played signet, which is the blue-black one. 
it's also the most expensive. It's three dollars. Oh most no, that's places. not the most expensive one. The most expensive one, I think, is Azorius. Last time I checked, it was six or seven dollars. Oh really? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's not as played in crazy. as many decks if you you know go by EDH rec. But point stands. I mean, but I mean that even applies too though. Blue doesn't do a very good job. It's playing the talismans at such a high number that I think it's it's telling that people are, are reaching for that rather than you know the talisman of indulgence or obviously the green green talismans are not played that much because green doesn't really need it. Well, we've already talked about that. That doesn't apply just to green by itself. Green whatever doesn't need the help. Non-green decks like Demir, like Boros, like Azorius, they do need the help. Yeah, and as the data shows, they are playing those resources at a high clip. So yeah, it definitely stands. This isn't a unique issue for Boros. So that means that we want to move into the second and much more important part of that argument, that red and white can't draw cards. This is, for the most part, I would say true, but I also think it is misleading. First of all, we should break down that there's a difference between card draw and card advantage. So for example, I play Marin of Clan Naltoth, and in my Marin deck, if I have only one card in hand, but it's the card Animate Dead, which resurrects a creature from the graveyard, I actually have 18 cards in my hand, because Animate Dead can pick a bunch of things in graveyards, from my stuff to everyone else's stuff. That gives me a bunch of options. That is a version of card advantage. If you're playing, for example, Tendershoot Dryad or Omnath Locus of Rage, and they make you like 14 tokens, yeah, you didn't draw any cards, but you have 14 flipping tokens that you didn't have to spend a bunch of mana to produce. That is also card advantage. There's a really important distinction between the cards in your hand and the stuff you're actually doing, the game pieces that are provided to you in the game. And that's something that we really need to hammer down when we're going to start looking at what it means to have card advantage in these colors. Yeah, I mean, because... At the end of the day, the name of the game is kind of basically a resource advantage, right? That's what puts you ahead and, and, and gets you in a position to win. That can take the form of, you know, gaining life. It can take the form of making tokens or using graveyards. Card draw is just a version of that. And if you don't have access to just the raw putting cards in your hand, that doesn't mean you can't gain a resource edge on other people by playing around that if you don't have kind of tunnel vision on being fixated on you know, casting a harmonized type effect where you just draw three. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the biggest misconception that a lot of players have is the card isn't in their hand, so it doesn't count. But we, we talk a lot on this podcast, and a lot of people do these days, about impulse draw, quote unquote. Uh, but impulse draw, what we mean by that is exiling the top card of your library or finding a way to get cards that you can cast or you can use, but not necessarily from your hand. Stuff like Outpost Siege or Experimental Frenzy, those are two, you know, becoming very, fairly common sources of card advantage. It's not card draw, but you are getting access to more cards per turn because of, you know, things like Stolen Strategy and Atali Primal Storm. Those cards are giving you access to cast more spells, even though they aren't necessarily coming from your hand where most players associate card advantage coming from. Exactly. We got that new version, Ignite the Future, from the Commander 2019 mm -hmm. decks. We also, in that series, got Backdraft Hellkite. That one doesn't exile anything off the top of your library, but when that dragon attacks, it gives all of your spells in your graveyard the flashback ability. Well, when it attacks, you suddenly have a bunch more spells, quote-unquote, in your hand that you're now able to cast. There actually are a whole bunch of options. Dana, I think I'm seeing in our show notes here another list of other options that you even put down, too. This list goes on for a little bit. 
It's a, a little bit longer than I expected it to be, honestly. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, like, I just got done playing that Monored Varchild deck that I wound up taking apart. Um, the deck had some problems, but having cards in my hand was never one of those issues. In addition to the things you mentioned, Joey, you know, I ran Mizzix's Mastery in that deck, which let me flash back everything in my graveyard in one fell swoop. That's an insane amount of card advantage. Um, but there's, you know, a few other impulse draw things, light up the stage or uh, commune with lava. Um, Endless Atlas as an artifact is amazing in a monocolor deck. Finale of Promise gets back two cards from your graveyard and can copy them if you have enough mana to pump into it. Um, there's just a ton of options, and I never felt like in that mono red deck, like I had an issue keeping up with other people in terms of uh, acquiring resources from cards, whether it was Impulse Draw or casting other people's stuff with something like Stolen Strategy. The tools are there. You just have to understand they're not the same tools other colors have. And another thing that I'm seeing here in the notes, this is a really fun tool that I'm seeing about copy spells that you used there, too, to provide card advantage. <laughs> yeah, like I read a bunch of copy spells in the deck because it was based around extra combat steps. So I wanted to, you know, cast that uh, Relentless Assault and then copy it with a fork or a reverberate or whatever it was. However, what I discovered was really, really often I was just using that fork to copy someone else's draw spell. Um and, you know, I think that's a perfectly legitimate use of a card like Fork or Reverberate or Reiterate or something. I guess I, I, one of those, and I forget which, I think it's Reiterate perhaps, only hits your own spells. But I think Reverberate hits any spell. I know Fork definitely does. Um, those are useful spells in your own deck to copy your own things plenty often. But, like, there were times I'd hold that Fork up thinking maybe I'll use it for something. And then someone, you know, goes and drops to Harmonize. I will gladly have my own two-mana Harmonize. That always felt great. So I, I kind of discovered the power of being able to copy other draw spells cheap, cheaper than they could cast them for using those copy spells. And that's before you get to the point or to the fact that copying your own spells is, again, a form of resource advantage. If you spend two mana to copy that, you know, seven mana spell you just cast, you're coming out ahead. I think that's something people forget about, too. Red goes really, really deep and copy effects and that's another form of resource advantage and i think one of the biggest things too we need to keep in mind is that red's card draw when you do actually get to draw cards it's not so much tied to card you know just draw a card and it stays there but it's more about filtering in card velocity that's a term that i've i've heard used quite a bit and i really like it's velocity getting through your deck there's a lot of looting effects like faithless looting cathartic reunion Anything that makes you discard a card, start drawing cards again instead. So it's not so much about just the sheer number of cards, which players love, and I don't blame them. You know, Harmonize is always very enticing, but in red, you're more doing things that are going to get to the right card for the right situation. You're going to dig down to find the right answers and then discard a couple of the old cards. So you're stuck with less dead cards. You probably will actually help with, you know, that decision paralysis that I know I get stuck with all the time. But being able to find the right cards and getting rid of the cards that aren't applicable for that situation is something that red actually does very, very well. So it's not so much that card, card draw in red is, you know, oh, draw two cards whenever this happens. It's, you know, draw two cards, discard one card. You're still, you know, going up a card or most times being stuck at parity. But that's one thing that I think a lot of people tend to shy away from red is because they don't like the idea of having to discard a card. But Joey will tell you a card in the graveyard most of the time in Joey Schultz decks 
is a card in hand still. <laughs> Very much. But that's also true for red decks like Duretti as well. They use things like Goblin Welder that can get all of those things back. And there are white options for that too, like the card Refurbish. So like, it's exactly it. There is a way to take advantage of things like that velocity and that filtering. So it really can't just be viewed through the lens of draw a card. If that's the only scope that we're using to measure card advantage, we're going to just inherently set ourselves up for failure. But you know what? For the sake of it, let's look at cards within the Boros color pair that actually do literally say draw a card on them within these colors. Buckled in, this is actually a pretty significantly long list. First up, we know that artifact decks have a lot of different draw options available to them. SRAM Senior Edificer is a great one to draw a bunch of cards with uh, all of those equipments, but then Pure Steel Paladin is also accessible to you. Plus, a bunch of equipment also allow you to draw cards. Plenty of these sort of X and Y cycle will actually allow you to refuel on card advantage. And so do different equipment like Mask of Memory or, personal favorite, Skull Clamp. That's something that a tokens deck can definitely take advantage of. Speaking of tiny creatures, Mentor of the Meek is another awesome option for white to be able to draw cards. But then there's also some really weird off-the-wall versions. For example, Geth's Grimoire is something that you can use. Whenever other people discard cards, you can draw a bunch of cards too. And speaking of making other people discard cards, you can use things like Reforge the Soul, Wheel of Fate, stuff like that to force people to discard cards, which will then allow you to refuel on a whole bunch of stuff. You've also got some strange things like Slate of Ancestry, which allows you to discard your own hand and then draw cards equal to the number of creatures you control. Speaking of creatures you control, Vanquisher's Banner is another awesome option if you're playing a tribal deck. Spine Dragon is a weird option in red that allows you to draw cards if you've done a bunch of damage to other people. Like, are all of these good? Not necessarily, but, you know, some of them are extremely specific and some of them cost six mana before you even draw your first card. Some of them pigeonhole you into specific strategies, like auras or equipment or tribal decks, but some of them don't. The Immortal Sun is a really great, very ubiquitous card that provides you some steady stream of card advantage. The point is simply that these options do exist. They're not necessarily generic or ubiquitous like Ristic Study, but if you dig around, you will find things. We've got a huge list of stuff, and I didn't even read half of them. There's a lot of options that can actually literally draw you cards, not just use Impulse Draw or find other sources of pseudo-card advantage. There's actually quite a lot of cards that can draw you cards in these colors. If you sort of look very, very carefully, they do exist. Well, they do exist. And a lot of them, you know, not to go back to impulse draw again, but like one of the things I like about impulse draw is it's unique and flavorful to red. I, you know, we talk about people wanting their harmonize in red. I don't want to harmonize in red. I have a harmonize in green. I have one in, I have a concentrate in blue. I want to do something different when I'm playing these colors. And I think by and large in the last couple of years, they've given us a lot of cards that give you ways to put cards in your hand in, in red in particular. And it lets you do it in a unique flavorful way that feels unique to that color and lets you play the deck in a way that's different than other decks. That's a good thing. And no matter what, almost no matter what style of deck you're playing, there are sources that are going to fit into that strategy. Like Joey talked about equipment decks, creature decks. I mean, pretty much anything that you want to be doing, there's going to be some source of card advantage tied to that strategy. Yeah, and here's another really fun thing. When we are looking around for some fun tricks, for example, I mentioned that Geth's Grimoire forcing everyone to discard so you'll draw a bunch of cards. There are actually some really cool tricks within these colors that they're capable of. Dana, you recently rolled a whole article about how Crucible of Worlds can be used in non-specific landfall decks to still accrue some steady card advantage, especially in colors like red and white. Yeah, I mean, you know, even if you do nothing else but recur that, you know, Fabled Passage that you played to get a land... 
the fact that you never have to miss a land drop is a pretty big deal. Again, that's a resource advantage you're getting and you're always hitting those land drops, let alone if you're using something like, like Tectonic Edge to, um, or excuse me, Tectonic Reformation to discard a land card because you've given it cycling with that spell or you just happen to have cycling lands anyway to draw a card and then replay them. Like there's a lot of synergy there that really, really works nicely in this color pair. Yeah, another one that you've pointed out a couple of times on the cast now is the whole Pyromancer's Goggles trick that you use with Rummage spells. So when you use that red mana to cast a Tormenting Voice or something, you only have to discard one card, but then your spell will be copied and draw you an additional two cards. That's another neat trick. A lot of people like to use the Land Tax plus Scroll Rack option. Land Tax will get you three lands into your hand. Scroll Rack will let you put them back on top of your deck, draw three different cards, and then on your next turn, Land Tax will shuffle those other lands away. And that's another great way to find you know other tricks too. Uh, Alhamrat's Archive could be another thing that you use. If you are going to be using things like wheels, you could double the amount of cards that you're drawing on not just your draw step, and that would be another way to accrue a bunch of card advantage. And I think also sometimes scrying can be considered a form of card advantage, or at least card selection. Things like Crystal Ball, Sensei's Divining Top, Treasure Map, a lot of those can also be used to help you find the things that you need when you need them. Notably, a lot of the cards that we just listed are pretty expensive, that is definitely an important point. That can keep things, you know, out of players' decks for sure. But the point here is just to say that even if some of these options are pricey, they are still possible. And that's really what we're looking for. If we're trying to say that red and white aren't good at drawing cards, we should look at really what they are actually capable of. And some of these are still very, very significant sources of advantage. You know, and while you're right, some of them are pricey. Um I also sometimes do see that used as an excuse for someone when they just want to complain about Boros. You know, yeah, land tax is an expensive card, but you had no problem putting Crater Hoof in three of your green decks. Um, so, you know, I, I get it. It is it isn't a cheap card, and, then, and that doesn't change the price, but there's a lot of expensive cards in Magic, and if you're only complaining about the few of them in white and red, because let's be honest, there's probably less pricey ones in those colors than there are in green, blue, and black on average. Maybe you're just using that as an excuse to complain about Boros. Ouch. A little bit of shade, but you know what? It kind of makes sense. Yeah. So I kind of do want to linger just a little bit longer on the idea of pseudo or virtual card advantage, because there are also some other types of tricks that I think are pretty important that don't represent cards in hand like some of the ones that we were just mentioning. There are some things that you can do that will still give your deck a lot of staying power that I think are really important to latch onto here. So for example, when you attack with Sun Titan, which gets you back a tiny thing from the graveyard, and you get something back, well, you cast a free spell there. Or when you make tokens with Lathless or Elspeth or or Assemble the Legion, God Eternal Oketra, all of those different token makers, you are up on card advantage because you accrued more game pieces than you spent cards in your hand. These are really, really important moments that I think players need to especially hone in on because that is a way for them to outpace what their opponents are doing and be up on resources. Matt, do you have any other suggestions about virtual card advantage that you'd be able to accrue in these colors? So the big thing that I think red does very well that people kind of undersell is how it has compounding effects. And what I mean by that is effects that kind of reward you for what you might already be doing. Perforos is an example of that. You're, you're going to be playing creatures in red a lot of times. Perforos rewards you for playing creatures. You get that two damage per creature that comes into the battlefield with Perforos's ability. Uh, Dictated to the Twin Gods, any of your damage doublers, if you're playing Boros, you're probably going to win through attacking. That's just a very common way to do it. So Dictated to the Twin Gods 
or just anything that gives your creatures double strike, that makes your attacks that you are going to be doing already that much more effective. Uh, Warstorm Surge and, you know, even Torbrin, one of the new legendaries we talked about, they're great at taking what you're already going to be doing, that game plan that you already have built into the deck, and giving you a little bit more reward for doing that already. Yeah, and here's actually another one. This one's a big one that I see people talk about is the idea sort of of negative card advantage by taking pieces away from your opponents. When you play a Wrath of God and destroy a bunch of creatures that you don't control, you didn't lose anything, but your opponents did, you forced opponents to lose cards without sacrificing any of your own. Or if you use that in conjunction with something like Avacyn, Angel of Hope, you have maintained a lot of card advantage there. When you play a Relic of Progenitus or a Rest in Peace against my Marin deck, you have eliminated a lot of my game pieces. When you have something like a Hushbringer or a Torpor Orb and someone else is playing a deck that abuses into the battlefield effects, which those cards negate, you're negating their game pieces, which can take away a lot of the cards in their deck. That is a sort of form of reverse card advantage, but it is still significant. So basically all that we're trying to say with this argument is that, yeah, red and white do struggle to draw cards, but there are some options. There are some new ones that we're getting all the time, like the new Tome of Legends from the Brawl decks, but there are also some other options beyond just the cards in hand that we really need to make sure that we're looking at when we examine this argument critically. Which means that we also need to get onto the next part of the argument about why Boros suffers in Commander, and that's the idea that Boros Commanders only ever seem to care about attacking. From things like Kalemni to Aurelia, we seem to get a lot of Boros Commanders that are all focused about combat. So let's examine that piece of the argument too, because I don't know that it's necessarily true. It is generally true, but it's not exclusively true. For example, Brian Stoutorm, that's a thing, the commander that sacrifices your creatures to throw them at opponents. He doesn't really use the combat step necessarily because he's using an activated ability. The new Feather, she's sort of a storm deck and she can be used as a Voltron, but she can also be used for a bunch of gutter snipe triggers and Aetherflux Reservoir triggers and things like that too. Or Firesong and Sunspeaker, that's a life gain deck. Gerard is a new option that allows you to do some weird artifacty things. So there are some other options beyond just combat, which I do think is important for us to acknowledge. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really good point. It's not, I would say, the real problem isn't so much that, they're, that they only ever care about combat, it's more that they only ever do it really, really badly. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's definitely something that we want to dig into. Yeah, I, I think there, you know, no one seems to ever complain that green commanders really only ever care about combat because they do it really, really well. Yeah, that's exactly it. A lot of Rakdos decks are also going to deal a lot of damage to you with their creatures, and a lot of green decks are going to stomp on you with a Crater Hoof or an Overwhelming Stampede. Those strategies are still fine, and we don't ridicule those colors for not being diverse enough in their offerings. That's something that we say about Boros, but there are some commanders that do evade that, and really it comes down to, you know, Boros being good in combat. But well, we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. The point is we just wanted to address that argument so that we can sort of follow up on it a little bit later. The last thing that we need to examine before we get to some solutions about how to play Boros and what can be done for it is the idea, the argument that you necessarily need ramp and card draw to do well in EDH. Honestly, I kind of think this is a false premise. Again, it's true most of the time, enough that if you say this and don't think too hard about it, you'll probably be right, you'll probably be fine. But again, it's not 100% accurate. Um, no, I, I think you need, like I said before, you need the resource advantage it just so happens that ramp and card draw are the most obvious, um, visible versions of that. 
And, and, and the other thing I would say, in addition to that, um, I think ramp and card draw tend to do a really good job minimizing any flaws that are in your deck and how you've constructed it. They fix a whole lot of problems if you don't have enough lands or a good mix of colors in your land base while drawing down three cards makes it way easier to hit one of the lands that does have the colors you want. Or if you don't have a very good curve, well, if you've got a whole bunch of ramp in your deck, it makes it way easier to cast spells when you may be holding a bunch of six drops. So I think the the most important thing about ramp and draw isn't so much that you need them to win games, is they make it way easier to win games in a deck that isn't that well built. (laughs) Well, just basically, like, I don't know, if you have no cards in your hand, but your opponents are at zero life you still win the game. Ramp and card draw are good in EDH because games will likely go long. And long games tend to lead to big spells, and if you can't cast the big spells, you'll be screwed. And if you're top decking and you don't have enough mana resources, that can really make it you know, difficult for you to keep up. But, I mean, heck, Matt, you've got a mono-red Valduk deck, and that thing slaps. It does. Well, and it's... it's- nice because it it does you know draw a decent amount of cards it does well in a lot of these areas that we talk about but i think the big thing that keeps valduk around is just red's natural strength in general not just in valduk but in in any mono red deck or or boros is it's speed and aggression resource accumulation doesn't matter so much so if you spend the first five turns ramping really hard in your your golgari deck or whatever if the boros play is turning a lot of creatures sideways and putting a lot of pressure on you it doesn't matter how many resources you've built up because, you know, you're at 15 life all of a sudden. So red's just natural strength of just going fast and dealing a lot of damage. It it doesn't leave the best taste in a lot of players' mouths. You know, people talk about playing Commander to do things we can't do in other formats, which, you know, playing the big splashy spells, I, I get it. I love doing that too. But red doesn't do that. Red likes to make things die and die quickly. Well, well I would say, man... In- so in, in the case of your your, your Valduck deck, um, I think you are getting that resource advantage early on by virtue of making all those tokens, which you can then use with things like Skull Clamp or whatever to trim an extra value off them or, you know, sacrificing them for, for mana, whatever you're going to do with them. But like you do right. have things in, in that deck that generate you resources. It's just not as obvious as Tulane drawing you cards for just casually glancing around the room. <laughs> right, because the the advantage isn't isn't happening on the right. battlefield. I spend a whole turn establishing my battlefield. I draw some cards, get some mana going, but then I pass the turn and, and my board state goes away. And that's one reason I think, honestly, that might be one of the reasons that Valduk does so well is because I pass the turn and I have the exact same board state, maybe an equipment or two more on Valduk, but all my elementals go away. So I pass the turn and all of a sudden I don't look as threatening as I did in my combat phase. Yeah, very much. Speed is a component that we just don't often evaluate in games of EDH. And Dana, you're totally right to mention that there's a resource advantage happening there, but a lot of other mono-red options might use speed in a different way too, like Perforos, for example. If you've ever played against a Perforos deck, you know that that thing is nasty quick. That is really, really tough to try and deal with. If you're busy casting explosive vegetations, Perforos might be busy melting your face off. And the new Tor brand looks really... It seems to have just as much alacrity, I would say. Like, there's a lot that these colors are still capable of that use speed as a resource, too. And, 
The format, I do think it's important to note, does seem to be getting a little bit faster as people tune up their decks. I do think that speed is something that we should consider a whole lot more. So don't lean just on the idea that you absolutely need a certain type of thing to win, like ramp or card draw. Most of the time, that will be true, but sometimes it will not be true. So the idea, the argument that you need ramp and card draw in EDH is just not 100% true. And there are some examples, especially in things like Mono Red, that help capture that. And that's just something that you should always keep in your toolbox when you are looking at how to play EDH successfully. So really what we're trying to boil down is that the problem is not specifically Boros. Boros does have a few compelling commanders that are really, really interesting. Things like Feather or Aurelia or Gisela. She's very expensive to cast, but absolutely changes the landscape of the game when she hits the field. Something like Brian's Doubt Arm is doing some really, really wild, weird fling stuff that you'll ever see. And yeah, Boros doesn't necessarily have the same diversity of effects as, for example, Golgari, which has things like Marin, Necromancy, and then Gitrog Landfall, and Glissa Artifacts, and Hepatra Minus One Counters. But still, Boros does have commanders that can be powerful. The problem, I wouldn't say, is Boros. I also don't think that the problem is red. Mono Red has some really cool commanders, and as we looked at earlier, it's got some cool other sources of card advantage too. So... We don't think the problem is necessarily Boros. We don't think that the problem is necessarily red. What do we think the problem is? So I think the, the, the first real problem here is white. And I, th I think there's, um, I alluded to that in the intro, but I think there's two axes that are issues. I think the first one is uh, they've spent the last several years doing a lot to address the issues with red. We've talked about all these really good impulse draw spells that are legitimately seem to fix a lot of problems in red. Those are all new additions to the game in the last several years, as are things like casting your opponent's spells with Stolen Strategy or things like Tectonic Reformation, giving your stuff cycling. There's been a lot of new tools given to Red over the last several years that have fixed a lot of these issues. Um, what's the tool White has gotten in the last several years? Smothering Tithe is the one I can think of. Like, There's one card, really, that's been given to white in, you know, five or six years that addresses anything in Commander. So I think, for one, they've fixed a lot of problems in red and have done next to nothing to fix the problems in white. And I think, number two, they've done a pretty good job creating interesting red commanders. We mentioned a bunch of them, but there's things like um, the second Krenko, which, you know, maybe isn't quite as good as the first Krenko, but it's still a really solid card. Both those Nehebs are interesting cards. The uh, the Razebore, I've seen a couple of Razebore decks that are really solid. There's been a whole bunch of interesting mono-red commanders pumped into the game in the last several years. There's been a whole bunch of terrible, unplayable mono-white commanders pumped into the game in the last couple of years, including both of the ones we got in Eldraine. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, there seems to have been a concerted effort to make interesting red things, and there's been almost no attempt to, to do anything with these mono white commanders they are absolutely like knocked off in two minute unplayable and commander garbage way more often than they're not and i think that's the second big issue we have no fixes for the problems in white for the most part and we have just generally bad boring unplayable commanders see i don't think that white necessarily is a bad color i do agree that some of our commanders that we've gotten haven't been the most exciting, but I think the big thing for me is, as especially the more that I've played and tried to branch out away from Slesnia is 
White, I think, is more suited to be a support color than it is to do the heavy lifting of a deck, so to speak. It's not meant to be the the backbone. Maybe it'll play a, a large role, but it's not meant to do for a deck maybe what green does in a Golgari deck. It's not meant to do what blue does in an Izzet deck. It's just white as a color and its strengths, it's not there. You know, you sure, you can pair it with black and make a, a very, very good Orzhov deck, but black is going to be that that backbone color. So I think white maybe is just better suited to maybe not be the, the shining star in a lot of decks because of just the strengths that it has, the way that it does some things. You know, we've talked about how it ramps, but it does it with Weathered Wayfair, which just it's not meant to be the most reliable. So maybe you pair it up with other colors to kind of cover that up while it still amplifies the strengths of what you pair it with. Well, but that's just it. I like, yeah, white definitely plays a supporting role, but I think that that's more accidental than intentional. I do think that the game suffers if we're not able to have compelling commanders in every color, even on their own. And that's a really big issue. One of the really main things that comes down to for white is that white is the jack of all trades color. There's really not a lot that white can do that other colors can't also do. And that is a really exciting prospect, actually. Like white can deal with any permanent type, for example, and that's not true for something like black or red, which struggle with enchantments most of the time. But taken another way, you know, white can do anything, but at the same time, that also means that white isn't special at anything either. And that's really where we get into some really thorny messes. Something that really bugs me, actually, is that it took them so long. It took Wizards of the Coast a very long time to realize that Beast Within was not a green effect. That is supposed to be a white effect. And that's one of the things that I think really, really raises its head here. It's so much easier to break cards in other colors because of those boundaries compared to something like white. It's very difficult to accidentally make something like a beast within in white because white can already do so much, which is why it tends to play the supporting role, I would argue, by accident as opposed to playing the leading role, which I really do wish that it was able to do more often. Well, and I don't think you have to choose one or the other too. Like, again, to go back to these the, the two mono white commanders we got, which were Lyndon the Steadfast Queen and Sir Alan the Lion's Claw, both of which are unplayable EDH cards for the most part. I understand that they have to balance some of the stuff for standard to a degree, but there are absolutely things they could have tacked onto those cards that wouldn't have made standard a problem. You know, Sir Allen, whenever um, he attacks other creatures you control, get plus one, plus one till end of turn. That's just way too minor of effect to be on your commander. But they could very easily have stapled some additional text on there that says when you attack with, you know, seven or more creatures or something, creatures you control get plus three, plus three and in flying instead. That's not something in standard you're going to reach very easily, and if you do, you maybe deserve to win. But then that gives you a commander that almost functions like a go-wide overrun commander in mono-white, which is not something they really have, and is definitely a deck you could have built. So I think that, you know, I get what you're saying, that it's a support color, and that's true, but they don't even seem to be attempting to do anything besides that. Like, the, those two commanders that are in this set... Um, I mean, you should feel bad if you made those two commanders and and were satisfied with having designed those and aligned them up against the two black commanders, which are both perfectly viable and standard and are both very good EDH generals. Some strong rhetoric, but 
uh, you know, it's the type of show that we're at right now. This is a strong rhetoric kind of show. I also, I kind of want to iron down into some of the, the nitty gritty problems that I also noticed within The Color White too. And, and I also, before I move on to this, actually, I want to get something straight. Wizards should not make red and white cards that explicitly draw cards because those would be freaking bonkers yeah. in other formats. Like we've said it before, we'll say it again. If you give a mono red burn deck in standard or modern the ability to also accrue card advantage, those games are over before they've begun. Or white, you know, one of its main strengths is, for example, that it can remove every type of permanent in the game. But if it gets to do that and it gets to draw cards, there's no way it would ever lose because they'd be one for oneing everything and never run out of ab- the ability to do that. Like those colors use speed and ubiquity as a strength in other formats, so they really are hamstrung to design things like like card advantage for this format. They really shouldn't be breaking that. If you're looking for a card that says draw three cards in white, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be disappointed for that because they're never going to do that. The important thing that we want to hit on here is that you might miss it when they print really good cards within these colors if you're only looking at that draw a card as the source of card advantage. But anyway, let's. I, I kind of want to move into some other problems too when it comes to this color. One of its main problems is scale. Like, the fact that Boros is very, you know, strict at combat isn't necessarily going to be a problem if combat was good in Commander, but the problem is that combat is so problematic in Commander. Your opponents have a total of 120 life, which is six times higher than the traditional pace that magic cards are usually designed for. Attacking leaves yourself defenseless. Attacking is often, you know going to be just for about maybe a sixth or maybe a fourth of one enemy's life total. You might hit them for eight. You might hit them for 10 or something. That's not nearly a very significant threat compared to the, you know, attacking for six or eight in another format. And the magic combat system is really set up to privilege blockers. That's a, a really big thing too that makes it difficult for a multiplayer game. Even if you blaze down one enemy, also in a commander game, by the time you have, you might have two more opponents who have had the time to set their strategies up. So really what it comes down to is the scale of combat is so difficult for these colors because they don't have something compelling to take all of those problems away and really put the pressure on that we would see by an aggressive deck in another format. Well, and that's probably why green is so successful at combat in Commander, because it has the cards that scale with multiplayers, whether it's Crater Hoof Behemoth or Pathbreaker Ibex or Overwhelming Stampede. Green has the tools to scale the combat to be not bad, and Boros, or really any color, other colors don't for the most part. Yeah, I just, like, for example, let's say that a Yarok player casts a Grey Merchant of Asphodel. They drain three life from every opponent twice. Everyone loses six life, the Yarok player gains 18 life. For a white deck to do the same thing, they would need to have three six-power creatures with lifelink, be uninterrupted when they attack with them in combat, not be blocked, and also those creatures would have to have vigilance for them to keep up their defenses. And that all costs a lot more than a Yarok player playing a Grey Merchant of Asphodel. Plus, you have to wait for summoning sickness to wear off. So, like, that's the type of thing that we're looking at for scale. It's the difference between someone, you know, target player loses X life versus Torment of Hailfire, which hits everybody. Those are the types of things that are really important. If you're going to make these colors, you know, the combat colors, combat has to be more compelling. That's just where it has to go. It's the difference between River's Rebuke, which bounces all permanents of one player at sorcery speed, and Cyclonic Rift, which gets everyone else's stuff. The matter of scale is really, really important. The reason Smothering Tithe is good is not because it gives mana advantage to white. Thran Dynamo could have done that. Smothering Tithe is good because it scales to the size of the game, and that is what combat needs to do too. 
Yeah, that, I mean, you are absolutely 100% correct. And I, and I think talking about the commanders that do it, I think that's why Aurelia, the original Aurelia, is so successful, relatively speaking, is because the extra combat step there does scale in a way that green, you know, similar to how green's combat steps with the, the crater hoof scale. Um, I don't know if adding more additional combat steps is necessarily the thing to do, but if you're playing a red combat-based deck, maybe you need to look into doing some of that yourself. That's maybe your equivalent of the Crater Hoof Behemoth. Yeah, and I think one thing that we can do is just look for cards that say each opponent or for each player. That's one thing that you know is, is common even in the, the, the anecdotes you gave, Joey, was you know, you're talking about cards that only do one thing, one specific thing. Gray Merchant saying each opponent. It, that makes all the difference. If it just said target opponent, it would not be near the powerful card that it is. I think that's one thing, and that you know we've we've pointed to cards that do mention each opponent, stuff like Atali Primal Storm, hitting each opponent, being able to steal a card from them. That you know that's three cards instead of one. I think those are the types of effects that don't make that big of a difference in sixty card formats and in one on one formats, but for multiplayer and commander, make all the difference. Right. So then there's also kind of another problem that I want to get to here. And a a card that kind of comes to my mind when we talk about something that scales within combat, that's the card Hydra Omnivore. That was the 6-mana 8-8 from, I think, the very first Commander product. And whenever it deals combat damage to an opponent, it deals that much damage to every other opponent as well. Honestly, that's always struck me as an ability that white not only could have, but should have. That has never really struck me as a green card. And yeah, flavorfully, each of the heads is going to, you know, each of the heads of the Hydra is going to deal damage to someone, but still dealing equal damage has always struck me as the type of thing that maybe white should do. And that's another really big problem for me is that I feel as though sometimes Wizards does not understand white in some certain cases. I don't know who needs to hear this, but it's always also struck me that Relentless Rats or Rat Colony should be white cards. You know, the cards that power themselves up for each other card that you have named Relentless Rats or Rat Colony? Like, equivalent low-drop creatures with no unique individuality, which rely upon one another to become greater than the sum of their parts? Like, if you've read a philosophy document on the color white in the past ever, that's totally a mono-white thing. That has always struck me as an ability that white should get, but yet it never really has. So, like, they're just small little changes here and there that I think would really be able to be fleshed out to give white a more unique color identity, but even then, that's another problem. Whenever they do make abilities that are uniquely white, they often get ousted by cards in other colors. For example, white gets Spirit of the Labyrinth and Alms Collector to restrict everyone else from drawing too many cards, but then Demir turns around and gets Notion Thief, and Soltai comes around with Leovold, which do that ability even better than white is able to do. So white also struggles on that capacity for having any unique color identity on its own too, because there are so many different confusing pieces of design that surround it. Well, and when there is overlap, they almost always default to giving the overlapped card or one that could go either way to the color that isn't white. And, you know, looking at this most recent set with very few tweaks, Emery could very easily have been a white card. But instead, you know, and it would have been the most interesting white commander we've gotten in how long? Um, instead, it becomes the second best artifact commander in blue we've got in the last six months. <laughs> That's I mean, a very really. specific list, Dana. And. And I've complained before, I don't like Azuri because I feel as though the tiny creature trigger for experience counters, that's a thing that falls very squarely within red and white. Like, even little things like that. Or Muldrotha, 
I don't know which piece of Muldrotha, aside from its artwork, is supposed to be blue. That also strikes me as an ability that white should have, since white cares about returning permanents from graveyards. But also, you know, going to a couple of other examples, if you like return to dust in white, well, green has force of vigor instead. Green also gets Bane of Progress, which has a bunch of different ways to get rid of artifacts and enchantments at a way quicker speed than white can. If you like Avon Mind Sensor to prevent your opponents from you know, searching through the library, well, the other colors get things like Ashiok Dream Render or Stranglehold, which will also be able to prevent people from doing that, and probably a little bit better. If you like Stony Silence and white, Green gets Collector Oof. If you like Savin's Reclamation, well, Green gets Eternal Witness and Regrowth. White gets Geist Honored Monk, while Green gets Avenger of Zendikar. White gets Deploy to the front, while Green gets Azuri's Predation, which makes just as many tokens, and they're bigger. Like, just some of those point-to-point comparisons show that White's really getting the short end of the stick here, and that can't help but be frustrating, especially when you look through things like yeah, I don't know, Hushwing Griffin to Kotli Honor Guard prevent other people from getting Enter the Battlefield effects, but that's also something that everyone can do in the form of Torpor Orb. Something that was kind of talked about in terms of, you know, here's a potential avenue for White to be able to get card advantage. It was kind of a weird dramatic thing when it came to the card Happily Ever After because it doesn't do that, but the point was that Wizard was trying to communicate that maybe equal draw, everyone gets to draw cards, might be an avenue that they would pursue for white to accrue card advantage. But white has had access, every color has had access, to things like Temple Bell and Howling Mine for a very long time, and there's a good reason that they're not using them. But the point is simply that white, a lot of its abilities keep getting sublimated and moved into other colors, and then those other colors tend to do them a lot better, which really just makes the color struggle when it is trying to be compelling. Okay, I'm sorry for that diatribe. I feel passionately about this. Sorry about that. But let's move away from just the criticism part of the show, I guess, and now analyze what are some solutions to this? What are some ways that within EDH we can make this color a bit more compelling? What do you guys got? Well, I mean, I think generally speaking, um, take a look at these mono white commanders they, they keep making that feel like they're throwaway standard only commanders and maybe put the kind of thought into how they play in commander that they seem to do with the the black commanders. I, I, I don't think anyone at Wizards is quite so blind as to not understand that, you know, the, both of the model black commanders from Throne are very playable in EDH. I think they're also therefore aware the two white ones aren't and I would like to see a little more effort put into making sure that these cards that are in standard sets also have the option to flex over in Commander. And I think that tends to happen in colors that aren't white, and I'd like to see more of it happen in white. Yeah, that's just it. If you're willing to put 18 billion potential trigger conditions on Sir Conrad, then they should probably also be willing to put 18 billion potential trigger conditions on a white card too. I do think it's a little you know, frustrating that they make Gerard on purpose, but they make Chulains by accident and Corvolds sort of by accident. But there are definitely ways that they can take the kitty gloves off a little bit and sort of unshackle them and do a bit more with those colors. I definitely agree. Well, and as we've seen with, with Red in the last few years, when they put their mind to addressing one of these problems, you know, we're at a point right now with, with all this, the, the various draw options in Red that like, there are cards I'm not running in a mono red deck that, you know, four years ago I would have thought would be staples till the end of time just because there's so many options. Like when Magmatic Insight first came out, I was amazed at that. We just got a better tormenting voice. Who would have thought that was going to be a thing Red, red, would, red would get um, at instant speed? So, like, they can address these problems if they want to. They've absolutely done it in red. I'd like to see some of that happen in white now. 
Yeah, I, I think the two big things that I, I think would make the biggest impact is, like we talked about, scale. So having a lot of effects for Boros or White especially that are like Smothering Tithe, where they scale to, say, each opponent. I think those types of effects apply over to what White and Red could be trying to do, but not really interfere, not upset the balance of one-on-one -on -one formats. Uh, Smothering Tithe, like I said, I, I know we want to talk about it a lot in this episode because I think it's such a good example of what is going to make an impact in Commander and help out White in those situations, but not bleed over too much and encroach on what other colors are doing. And another point, too, that I think would be very, very helpful is we've talked about how White does so many different things specifically. I would like to see those payoffs be worth being specific. You know, having a pure steel paladin where you play equipments and you draw a card, having more commanders that play around in that space where White does this more than everybody else. So let's make it worth doing and make it worth going out of your way to get that payoff and fit whatever theme that you're trying to do and make those those hoops that you have to jump through through the payoff. I I want to say those two points might be the biggest helps. And I am no game design expert by any means. So to take that with a grain of salt, Joey. But <laughs> those two those two strategies, I guess, to implement during card design. To me, being a 60-card player for so long, it's not going to disrupt standard. It's not going to do too much too modern, I wouldn't think. But giving commander players that access where it says each opponent, we've seen how powerful it is on other cards outside of Boros. So just exploring that space and dialing those knobs, it's not quite, you know, you have to make it this crazy overpowered effect to, to fulfill. But just having something slightly tuned so that white can keep up with a lot of these things that other colors are doing. Right. Imagine if Secure the Wastes said not just create X11 warrior tokens, but for each opponent, create X11 white warrior tokens. Suddenly that card is a lot more compelling. It's the difference between an Oblivion Ring, which exiles one permanent temporarily, versus Grasp of Fate. Something like Grasp of Fate, which does that for everyone. Those are very interesting and compelling, and that's the kind of thing that we need to see expand a little bit more. And for the record, I really want to hammer this home. Wizards, you do know how to make interesting mono-white commanders. Sometimes you just forget to make them legendary. I think Crested Sunmare <laughs> would have been an excellent example of a mono-white commander, which provides consistent card advantage by creating indestructible horses whenever you gain life. That would have been awesome and really nuanced gameplay, and it wouldn't have had to draw you a single card, but instead it's a normal horse. Or something like Stone Hewer Giant. That's a great card because it provides you a virtual form of card advantage by tutoring up you know, a bunch of different options within your deck. That is also a great form of card advantage. And if that was a legendary creature, it would have been way cooler than something like, you know, the Nikiri Planeswalker that we ended up getting. Like, there are some really interesting options within these colors. They just need to really be focused in on a bit more. And those options, if they can be legendary, any opportunity that we can take here to help the color out is going to be really awesome. Another thing that I really want to see, I do want white to have a bit more of a unique identity. Right now it is a bit of a jack of all trades, but there are still some game design areas where it could be a bit more focused on this is my very specific specialty that no other color is able to do. Most importantly, I think Planeswalkers is really where mono white needs to find one of its biggest homes that other colors don't have as much going on. Because they represent, without drawing a single card, they represent persistent, consistent, awesome advantage. And that is definitely a specialty that I think that white should be able to hone super far in on. That's something that I'd really, really love for them to expand a lot more into is the Planeswalker specialty within 
mono white decks especially. So those are definitely some of the things that we would really like to see going forward. Cards that compellingly scale to the nature of the multiplayer format of Commander, cards that make combat a lot more compelling for mono white as well, and also expanding a bit more into the unique identity of the color, as well as providing some other, you know, a bit more interesting legends here and there as well. Those are things that we definitely want to see going forward. But I also want to ask you guys, what are some of the responsibilities for the players? What are things that we can do to help ourselves make these colors a lot better in EDH2? I think the big thing is not to put forced expectations on Wizards of the Coast when they do design cards. I know that they are trying. That is one thing we we cannot say that they are, are doing is we can't say they're not trying. I think they are. I think it's taking time. I think it's a little bit of a process, which is fine because that means they're experimenting. They're trying to come up with new things for us. I think we need to let that process go. I know it's not the easiest thing to be patient with it, but not force our expectations on a card and say, well, this card's a failure because it's not what I was expecting. I, th I see that a lot, and I know I struggle with it too quite a bit. But just letting wizards design cards and, and explore that space, eventually they will find something that's going to blow us all away. And I think it's going to take some some failures to get to that point. I I don't think failures are necessarily bad. It's just, sure, it, it is kind of a pain getting to that point to where they know everything is right. Um, I think players need to adjust their expectations a little bit for Boros in particular. Um, you know, I think every color obviously has strengths and weaknesses um, but I think the strengths and weaknesses of most other colors or color pairs are ones that are number one relatively limited and number two much easier to work around or just ignore um, you know black can't interact with artifacts and enchantments for example but everybody knows what the, the the artifacts you can run that let you deal with those things are whether it's unstable obelisk or spina visha what have you I think in Boros, the workarounds are quite a bit more esoteric for the most part. They're a little bit more difficult. And I think people need to be willing to look outside the box a little bit more to find those answers. And, and I, I think the average player maybe isn't comfortable doing that. I think um, th there's a lot of going with what the you know general consensus is. People tend to like to, to follow those guidelines and, and they want to look for the obvious harmonized type spells that doesn't exist in Boros. So I think sometimes people don't look further than that. And I absolutely get that. I'm sometimes guilty of that myself. It's it's very easy to just go with what kind of the, the, the hard and fast staples of any particular color combination. And so I get it. But I think if you're going to play these colors, you need to maybe be a little bit more creative and, and look for answers that aren't quite so obvious. Right. And that's just it. Like we mentioned earlier in the show, Watsi has given us some yeah. tools that actually do address some of these problems. There's a lot of equipment that draws cards. The new Tome of Legends is something that also rewards us in similar veins. And if we're only looking through the lens of ramp and card draw, well, then we might miss it when they make actually very cool and compelling cards. They have given us a lot of tools, and we need to make sure that we are receptive to them. We need to look for alternative routes to accrue card advantage. We need to look for all of those things in all of the different ways that they might manifest. And if we're only expecting one thing, then we might miss it when they make really, really cool cards that actually do help bring these colors into, you know, a lot bigger of the limelight. And really, all that comes down to, for the love of all that is holy, stop expecting to play white and red like they're green and blue. 
like just play them like they're white and red. Use their strengths. Lean into those strengths. You should play Boros like it's Boros. Sometimes that involves speed. Sometimes that involves being a little tricky. And it doesn't just mean that you need to be looking for things to draw you cards because it is a lot more complicated than just Boros can't ramp and draw cards. There's a lot more nuance that's happening here and we need to make sure that we are interrogating that whenever we get the chance so that we can find what is actually going to be the best solution to help us all get better at this game, especially when we're playing colors like this, which are behind. We want to find the correct reasons that they're behind rather than what might be true. We want to find the exact reasons so that we can get better at it. Yeah, I 100% agree with your, your sentiment of lean into what your colors do well. If you're playing Boros, lean into the fact that you are going to be pretty good at being aggressive. You are going to deal a lot of damage potentially in a short amount of time. So lean into that. Don't expect to ramp up to some big eight drop. Enjoy and and look for those those three and four drops that are going to you know get things going, cause action to happen around the rest of the table. That's probably the thing I enjoy about Valduk the most is I don't sit around. I make sure that people at the table are encouraged to hurry up and, and play out their game plan if they want to do it because you're not going to have the most amount of time. Right. When Wizards creates good cards for this color, they might not look like the things that we expect. So while they have some work to do to make these cards a bit more interesting, we've also got some responsibilities here too to make sure that we're receptive when those interesting things happen. This has been a really fascinating discussion, guys, but we've got one last segment that we have to hit before we close the show out, and that, of course, is challenge the stats. There's a lot of statistics here on EDH Rec, but we don't always agree. Sometimes we think that cards are being played more than they deserve. Sometimes we think cards are being played less. So let's move on now to challenge some statistics. Dana, first up is you. What do you got? Okay, first up for me is a white card that I mentioned earlier in the show, and that's Tithe. It's an instant speed, one mana spell from way back in Visions. Um, it says, search your library for a Plains card, and if you control fewer lands than target opponent, you may search your library for an additional Plains card. Either those cards and put them into your hand and shuffle your library afterwards. So it's a one-shot land tax kind of effect. However, it works even if you have more lands than somebody else, unlike land tax. And it doesn't say basic planes. You can go get any planes, whether it's a dual land or a Mistvale planes. And unlike land tax, which takes a full turn to work and can get removed before somebody, before you can actually get your cards off it, Tithe just works. You cast it, get your land or two lands, and move on with the rest of your day. Um, it's only in 1,746 decks in EDH rec versus land tax being in over 11,000, just short of 12,000 decks. Um, and you know Tithe isn't a cheap card. It's $12 right now-ish. The land tax is almost $30. Um, I, I don't think you should run Tithe instead of land tax, but I think if you are playing land tax in a deck that doesn't have green, you probably should also be considering running Tithe as well. I think it's a great supplementary card that doesn't see nearly enough play. Pretty interesting option for some color fixing and colors that we usually allege don't have good yeah. color fixing. That's a fascinating one. What do you have for us here, Matt? So my card isn't so much a, if you're playing this deck, you should play it. This is more of a, a metagame call, if you will. So if you have people that play a good amount of go-wide decks, this card recently actually ruined a game for me. Shut me down, stone cold, super hard to get out from. That card is Rampaging Ferocidon. It is two and a red for a 3-3 three, three dinosaur with menace. Players can't gain life. Plus, whenever another creature enters the battlefield, Rampaging Ferocidon deals one damage to that creature's controller. 
So I was playing my Tesa Karlov deck, and this made it so hard to do anything. I depend on gaining life. <laughs> I depend on making tokens. Could not do either. It it really hurt me. But then there was also somebody playing the uh, Naya Tokens Precon deck, and it was straight out of the box, and that did a lot of damage to them too. So if you see somebody that's doing any sort of go-wide decks, this is one of those challenge stats of mine that... I, I'm encouraging, like Joey and I said, lean into what red does. Red does Punisher effects pretty well, and it is symmetrical. It can hurt you if you have creatures entering the battlefield. But the Crush player that was playing this Rampaging Ferocidon, he only got two creatures into play, just made them huge, and then pulled the Dana Roach special, flung them at somebody's face to kill them. So what I'm saying is Rampaging Ferocidon is a great card. It's, it's kind of a counter to any of those life gain decks. Uh, you look at Soul Warden, which is kind of the inverse of Rampaging Ferocidon, where you gain a life whenever a creature enters the battlefield. That's played in 7,000 decks compared to only 2,100 for Rampaging Ferocidon. I think that number should be much, much higher, especially considering how many tokens decks are going to be running around in the wild after Commander 19 has come out. That's especially going to be good in Torbrand decks, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, three damage for every creature that comes into play. Sign me up. All right, sounds really, really nasty. Mine is also a bit off the wall. I'm looking at the card of Mistvale Plains, but I'm not looking at it for any specific commander like I would normally do. I'm actually looking at it for decks that include the card Sunforger. Sunforger, as we all know, is that really cool Boros-styled equipment that you can equip to a creature, gives plus four, plus oh, but you can also unattach for a red and a white mana to go search your library for an instant spell in those colors that you can then cast for free. If you get a really nice chain going on with the Sunforger, you can have a response to really any big moment. And a card that I really like for a deck that uses Sunforger is Mistvale Plains. Mistvale Plains is itself a Plains, even though it is non-basic, so it can tap for white mana. It enters the battlefield tapped, and here's its neatest ability. You can pay a white and tap it to put target card from your graveyard on the bottom of your library. Activate that ability only if you control two or more white permanents. The reason I like this is because with Sunforger, one of the weird tricks to it is that once you've used that spell with the Sunforger ability, well, then it's kind of stuck in your graveyard, so you're going to be eventually running out of options. Not with Mistful Planes. Mistful Planes can be used to get that spell back into your deck, so then you can always get access to it. If you want to recycle that Teferi's Protection over and over and over and over again, you have that option, and that sounds really really cool. That is a great way to help accrue card advantage or to keep yourself, you know, maintain staying power in the game that is going to be really, really awesome for those colors. So if you're playing Sunforger, I think that you should definitely consider Mistvale Planes. And the reason I want to challenge it here is that only 21% of decks that use Sunforger also include Mistvale Planes. I think this is something that should really be on your radar. It deserves to see a lot more play than just 21% of Sunforger inclusive decks, because that is such a cool combo if you're able to get it ready. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's not a whole lot of downside with Misfail Planes in general, um, particularly though in a Sunforger deck. So much gross stuff can happen, looping just terrible cards over and over again. So yeah, that should see more play, that combo. Yeah, just one of those other ways that you can sort of accrue some neat card advantage, have extra selection, things like that. That is definitely what we want to see. Do you guys have any last-minute thoughts about Boros or about Mono White in EDH before we finally wrap up our show? I don't. I only have Mono Red comments, so I'm I'm discounted. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we've we've covered it in pretty good detail. I, I think any of the things that I don't like about the state of White right now 
um, red proves that can be addressed. So the the path to a solution is there. I just hope that when we revisit this for the third time in you know two two years, <laughs> we can talk about all the the good new things White has since gotten. Yeah, exactly. I just mentioned Teferi's Protection, for example. They know how to make good white cards, and I look forward to when they create those, and I really hope that we're all able to appreciate them when they come out. Even if they don't necessarily look like the things that we always want, they are still going to be compelling when they arrive. With that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters, at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can also find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the cast as well. Congratulations again to our giveaway winner, Barry B. Benson on Twitter. Get in touch with us so that we can send you one of our awesome EDH RecCast playmats. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section on EDH Rec, where we feature as many content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH Rec your deck before you wreck your deck. I get that you said you had so much fun doing it the first time that you did it twice more, but how did you have so much fun doing it the first time that you did it two times more? Well, it, I don't... Bear, bear in mind, it was like five years ago. So when I got that foil, you know, Yavamaya Hollow for my Glissadak, when I, and I traded for it, it was a $40 card. Yeah. And my, now... the Yagmas Will, the Judge Foil Yagmas Will was like 60 when I traded for it. So like, yeah, a lot of that stuff has... It, yeah, but what is it now? It, I mean, the the Yamaha Howl is like 400. The Yogg's Will is like three. Goodness gracious. No. So like, I, I wouldn't even undertake that today. I wouldn't even attempt to do it. I feel like also there's a piece of it where it sort of forces you to keep those cards because of the investment. Absolutely. Like yeah, I, like I don't like Yamaha Howl that much anymore, but I, t- but I, I keep it in that deck because it's... I can't commit to that, man. Expensive. You know, and I got it. Yeah, I can't. I can barely commit to brunch. I don't think I can commit to it. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.